1.7 billion. That's the expected world population in 2050. An additional 2 billion mouths to feed in just 30 years' time. How can this planet sustainably feed so many more people? We'll be hearing how robots can help. We're using robotics and AI, and our farm bots are called Tom, Dick and Harry. And gene editing could make a big difference. Farmers can take a small tissue sample from their young animal, have the animal genotyped, and from its DNA, we can tell how good it's going to be for a variety of different traits. And reducing food wastage also has its part to play. If we do this, we can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of pig feed by the same amount as driving 3 million passenger cars for a year. But first, let me introduce our panel. Joining me is Janet Ronganachan, Vice President for Science and Research at the World Resources Institute. Hello, Janet. Can you just set out the scale of the challenge? It's a very large scale, and I think in some ways we've underestimated the magnitude of the challenge. So between now and 2050, with those additional 2.5 billion people coming on, we need to produce 56% more food than we're producing today. So it's not just a distribution problem, it's about a quantity problem. The challenge there is that we have to do that while minimizing the agriculture land footprint. They're not making land anymore. Most of the land that can be used to produce food is already in production. In fact, if you looked at the planet, took away the ice and the deserts, about half of the planet is now used to produce food. So we kind of have a large farm as a planet. The remaining land, we need to provide other ecosystem services to protect biodiversity and to store carbon. So we have to increase 56% food without expanding the agricultural footprint. The second problem there is that we have to do it within a climate budget. So people typically think about the energy system that propels our economy as the major challenge for solving climate change. But in fact, agriculture is just as important. I would say it's actually going to become even more important. Today, it's about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions globally, a half of which comes from land use change. When I say that, think about deforestation, agriculture and expansion of the agricultural frontier is the primary driver of deforestation. And under a business-as-usual scenario, where we continue with the same improvements in productivity, so I'm not sort of assuming it's going to zero out, if we continue to do that, the agriculture sector is going to blow through about 70% of the entire economy-wide greenhouse gas budget under a two-degrees climate change scenario. So it becomes a predominant emitter. I want to make one more challenge there. The majority of the world's poorest people actually work in the farm and they toil to put food on our plate, um, often as they go hungry themselves. It's not necessarily true in the UK, but it's very true in many of the countries that will become the food baskets of the world. So we've got to close the 56% food gap. We've got to do it within a carbon budget without expanding the agricultural frontier and while lifting millions of people out of poverty. So for me, that's uh, what I call the mother of all sustainability challenges. And you've written a report, How to Sustainably Feed 10 Billion People in 21 Charts. Now, we're not going to be covering every single solution, but if I had to put you on the spot, what would your top one be? I'm going to push back and say that unfortunately there is no silver bullet. But let me just say it has to be a combination of both production, how we increase production more sustainably and quickly, 
as well as consumption. So you can't think about it as just agriculture. You have to think about it as a food system. But if you force me to pick one, I would say that increasing the efficiency of resources and the productivity on existing land is key. And as a person who's worked in the environment, that sounds kind of a little intuitive. Isn't intensive agriculture bad for the environment? But it's actually a land-sparing strategy. You know, we can't allow the agricultural expansion to continue to expand into the forest. So the only way to close that 56% gap is either to produce more sustainably on the same land or reduce consumption. Uh, Carl Atkin is also with me, agri-business consultant, working closely with farmers in the food industry. Carl, I'm also going to put you on the spot. If you had to choose one priority, what would it be? Well, I think for me, looking at the issue of wastage is very important. I, I agree with Janet. There isn't a silver bullet. It's lots and lots of multifaceted things, both on the production and the consumption side. But the reality is, if you look how many calories you produce in the world, a lot of food gets wasted. In the emerging market, it gets wasted at farm level and in the value chain. And in the developed world, it gets wasted at the consumer and consumption level. Well, let's now hear from our first case study, those at the forefront of this global challenge. And it's a case study in reducing food wastage. My name is Karen Lux, and I'm head of research at Feedback, who came up with the big idea. Feedback is an environmental organisation and we have our roots in fighting the food waste scandal, um, not just in terms of what people waste at home, but also looking at the role of supermarkets and other powerful players in the whole of the food supply chain. So the pig idea came about because there were kind of two simultaneous problems going on. On the one hand, we know that however much we manage to reduce food waste, there's always going to be a fraction of a surplus that is unavoidable, which could come from for example, from unpredicted gluts due to good weather. And on the other hand, although pigs have evolved as the ultimate recycling machine for our leftovers, they are now being fed human edible crops such as cereals, wheat, barley, corn, soybean meal, and things like peas and beans. So we're most worried about the production of soya because most of that soya still comes from South America, where it continues to be a key driver of deforestation. The pig idea originally was started by Tristram Stewart, who wrote a book on food waste and who is also the founder of Feedback, together with Thomasina Myers, who is the founder of Oaxaca Restaurants. They together came up with the pig idea and they organized a big feast on Trafalgar Square, raising awareness and people get very excited about it. But then we realized we needed to do a lot more work to try to achieve a system where we can really do this safely because it's absolutely essential that we heat the leftovers to avoid diseases in the same way in which you can't eat raw chicken because it will give you food poisoning. You need to make sure that the surplus food is treated so that it's safe for the pigs. And what we've just done is we've finished a four-year research project where we brought together experts such as veterinary epidemiologists, microbiologists, pig nutritionists and other experts and what is clear is that the surplus food will need to be treated in specialist treatment facilities that are located off farm to ensure that there is no cross-contamination, there's no feed that could have some disease in it that hasn't been treated yet ends up in the pig feed. It can only be uh, made safe for omnivorous animals such as pigs, not cows or sheep because there might be some meat in the leftovers. We need high biosecurity and very tight controls of the system. But even with all that in mind, the benefits are huge. For example, at the level of the European Union, we calculated that if we do this, we can reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of pig feed by the same amount as driving 3 million passenger cars for a year. 
And um, if we transformed about 50% of our leftovers into feed, which is what is currently achieved in Japan, we can also produce much cheaper pig feed. And that's good for the farmer and for the pigs because we can pass it on to them in form of better welfare. And of course, we can reduce our reliance on soya imported from rainforest areas. When it comes to using surplus food in pig feed, we need to be absolutely clear that this is just a plan B. We first need to prevent food waste from occurring in the first place. We don't you know, we need to avoid overproducing food. And we've got many research reports at feedback showing how overproduction is happening right now from our work with farmers because of the way the supply chain works. And if food waste is unavoidable, then it first needs to go to people and only then to animals. And we need to be really clear about that. You're listening to More Than a Number, brought to you by ICAEW. So, Janet, can you just run me through some of the numbers on food wastage? How how much food do we waste? It's shocking. So globally, a third of the food that's produced between farm and fork is wasted or lost. A third? A third, yeah. So one in three calories that we produce never makes it to the mouth. As Carl said, in developing countries, poor countries, about two-thirds of that is food lost and it occurs close to the farm. It's due to um, weak infrastructure, poor storage. In rich countries like the UK and the US, about 60% of it occurs near the fork. So think restaurants, supermarkets and the household. Throwing food away. In fact, in the United Kingdom, 70% of the waste actually occurs at the household. Throwing food away. The average family of four in the United Kingdom spends £700 on food that literally ends up in the bin. Carl, I buy my sort of cheap and wonky shaped fruit and veg. So that is also a problem that consumers don't want food that doesn't look hugely appetising. How much of a problem is that? Where where else are the problems in, in, in food wastage? Well, I think in developed markets, there's lots of issues. You're right, the conformity issues around multiple retail and the fact that we expect everything to be of the same size, the same consistency does mean inevitably that you get much higher wastage, particularly in things like vegetable packing and processing than you would in emerging markets where retailers will generally take um, a greater proportion of the harvested product. So that's one issue for sure. I think the second issue is even in some of the most efficient supply chains we have in the world, and you know, here in the UK, our agribusiness value chains, because we've got intensely dominant retail, you know, really driving efficiency, they are pretty efficient. But even they're not as efficient as they could be in terms of information flows up and down the chain. So Can you again, explain in real world. Yeah. So a good example of this is I did a project with a UK retailer a few years ago. We were looking at their vegetable supply chains, and we were looking at the information flows up and down the chain and what happens when they um, run promotions. So the obvious supermarket promotion is a bog off, buy one get one free. These decisions are often taken at retail level without much understanding or filtering down the chain. So you have this sort of scrambling effect where the chain is trying to catch up with a huge surge in, say, you know, bags of carrots or bags of onions or whatever. The promotion stops and then you have this rump of production in the chain and then you end up with quite a lot of excess product that then gets wasted. It's really basic stuff. And even in the most sophisticated food chains in the world, we haven't quite got demand management um, and data sharing and communication correct. So what should policy do? Should the, you know, the government ban bog-offs? I mean, what, what, what is the policy response to the food wastage? Janet? Remember I gave you that very broad statistic of you know one third of food being wasted. 
We don't actually know much beyond that. And what gets measured gets managed. This has largely not been managed. Most countries, most companies, most cities, most you know counties, they have no idea what, either what the number is or where it's happening. So I would just say, look, you know, let's get back to basics. First thing is like, let's just figure out, let's measure, you know, how much is it? Where is it happening? And to that end, you know, we and a number of other colleagues have developed what's something called a food loss and waste protocol to help companies and countries figure out how significant is this problem, where does it happen? Because once they've done that, the next logical thing is, wow, okay, how do we set a target on it? How do we develop policies? How do we develop technologies that come in there? But but in Africa, for example, often the roads are really poor quality. Often there are no refrigerated lorries. And to change all of that to build an international road network across Africa, to introduce thousands, if not tens of thousands of refrigerated lorries, the money has to come from somewhere. Where would it come from? You made a very good point, which is the second part of the argument, which is in emerging markets, it's mostly a farm level and uh, early stage value chain problem. And it's particularly true in perishables. So yes, cool chain, cold storage, refrigerated transport and distribution, but also sometimes in bulk commodities, even just decent ventilated storage to keep grains and and other staples from being infested and and, and not going mouldy or spoiling. So there's a real kind of post-harvest technology issue. So, Um, So what is the solution? Well, I think the solution is is lots of... Given a lot of the population growth is happening in Africa. Yeah. The issue in Africa is the productivity potential of the industry is huge, but the the biggest challenge is infrastructure. So there needs to be infrastructure investment. And again, picking up Janet's point, I don't think there's a silver bullet there. It'll be a combination of public, private, development, commercial approaches to put the necessary infrastructure in place. Walmart procure pork in many Asian countries, and there's sort of a very high rate of being perished because it's not packaged and sealed properly. So what Walmart did was they used their very large buying power to buy down the cost of the packaging, and they actually provided that packaging directly to the farmers. And they required their farmers then to use that packaging, which is their packaging now. It's actually much cheaper than the inferior packaging that the farmers were using and met the sort of procurement standards of Walmart. And that was an attempt, you know, to reduce loss, food loss in that chain. But it was a nice arrangement for both the farmer and for Walmart. And what about here in the UK where the loss is mainly at the fork end? So, you know, households, restaurants, whatever. What can we do here? What would be the policy answers here? So um, Dave Lewis, the CEO of Tesco, he's part of a, a group that WRI and the Dutch government have convened of businesses and governments. It's called Champions 12.3. And Champions 12.3 has set a target, and it's actually a UN Sustainable Development Goal, number 12.3, hence the name, to reduce food loss and waste by half by 2030. Dave Lewis signed up for Tesco's, and um, Tesco's have set a target to reduce, actually, they've set a target to eliminate all food waste that could have been consumed, but they've changed their packaging. So I don't know if you've noticed, if you buy like these, you buy two chicken breasts, they used to be in one container. Now it's actually a double pouch. So you eat the one chicken breast and the other one's still sealed in that pouch. So it's less likely to go off. Asda, I don't want to just call out Tesco here, Asda, they figured out what were their free produces that were most wasted, either in the store or when customers took them home. But they put the information tags on how to store and use these to extend their life right there where the products were for the customers. So that's food wastage, but it's not just food wastage because according to your data, we all need to change what we eat. And there's been lots of news stories about veganism being better for the planet. Do the numbers show that? The whole planet does not have to become a vegan or even a vegetarian 
to solve that massive challenge that we discussed earlier. However, there are certain countries, and the UK is one of them, the UK, Brazil, US, that are very large consumers of meat. And meat has a disproportionately large land, greenhouse gas, and water impact relative to the amount of calories and protein it delivers you. So we do need to reduce meat consumption. Don't need to turn everyone into vegan. Don't have to turn everyone into vegetarian. We do need to reduce meat consumption in those high-consuming countries in order to allow other poor countries that eat very little now to be able to eat more. Because, of course, that's what we see when developing countries get richer. They, the right. population wants to eat meat. This is a massive transition now from rural to urban areas. And urban areas, your income rises. And one of the first things people do when their income rises is they buy higher in the food chain. They spend more money on meat. Half the ice-free, desert-free planet is used to produce food. Two-thirds of that is for livestock alone and ruminant meat, in particular lamb, beef, goat. And I presume in terms of global calorie production, exactly. it's not two-thirds. So in the US, which is a big meat consumer, beef still only represents 3% of calories, even though I've just told you that two-thirds of the half the planet that's used to produce food is specifically for that sort of inefficient way. Eating meat is nice and enjoyable, but it's not an efficient way from a resource perspective to deliver the calories and protein you need. But Carl, is it that clear cut? I agree with a lot of what Janet says in that, you know, livestock fundamentally are inefficient converters of inputs to outputs for sure. I uh, don't think anyone would argue with the basic biology of that. And the uh, the second point is clearly we are going to have to get more of our calories and protein from alternative sources. Nobody's suggesting that we're all going to have to stop eating meat or, milk or livestock products tomorrow, but the trend is quite clear. I mean, I'd just make a couple of points on that. The first one is meat is not meat or beef is not beef. You know, we, we talk about generic product classes in very high-level terms, you know, and, and beef produced under a grass-fed system in maritime Western Europe is very different to beef that's intensively produced in a feedlot in the US Midwest where they're entirely fed concentrate. The welfare profile is different, the production profile is different, and the sustainability profile is different. Okay. We need to understand those nuances. And there is a bit of a danger that we always pick the worst set of data when we're looking, trying to compare meat and meat alternatives. The second point to make, just picking up Janet's point on land use, is yes, a lot of land globally is used for livestock, but a lot of that land can't be used for anything else. If you think about the uplands of England and Wales and Scotland, where it's grazed by cattle and sheep, you know, we're never going to be able to plough that land up and grow crops. And those livestock are giving an intrinsic livestock value, uh, intrinsic landscape value in terms of the natural capital enhancements and, and, and public goods that they're providing. So we need to have a little bit of nuance on this. And almond milk is not necessarily better than cow's milk. Well, again, I think we need to be careful here. There's a little bit of a danger in sustainability, which I know we're going to come on to a little bit later, that we metricate everything by greenhouse gas emission equivalent. And, and yes, cows do produce a lot of methane. Let's, let's be clear on that. But, you know, where do we produce most almonds? We produce them in very drought-stressed parts of the world currently. So California is the obvious example. So, yes, almond milk is a more efficient way of producing milk than dairy milk, but actually it's producing a, a bigger water pressure, I would argue, where it's produced. Soy milk is another good example. You know, expansion of soya is... In Brazil, in the Cerrado, land use change associated with intensification of crop production. There are lots of ways of looking at the sustainability debate. And it's important that we don't just look at it from one angle. So um, I, I want to come in on the statement that actually, you know, there's a lot of land that could not be used to produce crops. So if we don't use it to produce livestock and meat, it will go to waste. Um, I often hear that from the cattle industry. I get it weaved down my neck in the United States. So let me just point out that actually all of that land that can be used for livestock production today in the planet is being used. 
And although I said there's a 56% calorie gap between now and 2050, meat consumption, and particularly ruminant meat, so beef, lamb, and goat, is going to increase by 88%. So none of that land is going to go to waste. We have to use it more efficiently. So I agree with you, we have to increase livestock productivity. But we also have to reduce consumption or land is going to continue to expand and we're going to lose what little's left of our remaining natural forests. Now, you brought up the concept of how do you quantify sustainability? Do we look at greenhouse gases? Do we look at water? Do we look at deforestation? Do we look at soil degradation? How do you classify it? One of the problems is the ruminants. So the greenhouse gases, the methane produced essentially cow burps, cow flatulence and other ruminants and the amount of greenhouse gases that that produces. Can you give me a sense of the numbers, Janet? Okay. So I told you earlier that about a quarter of the global emissions um, come from the agricultural sector, half from land use change, deforestation. So um, the expansion into forests of pasture is livestock driven. But I'd say the other half of that uh, quarter, which is production related emissions, half of that comes from the production of ruminant meat. So it's methane, it's it's nitrous oxide from some of the waste products. Uh, Let's now hear from our second case study. My name's Mike Coffey and I'm a Professor of Livestock Informatics at Scotland's Rural College based in Edinburgh. And my job is to look after the animal breeding and genomics team here at SIC. But in addition to that, I also look after the unit that calculates the breeding values used by farmers in the UK to value their stock and rank their animals. Broadly, what we're trying to achieve by using genetic selection is to make sure that the next set of animals that we breed are better than the previous. And better, obviously, is a changing feast. In the past, better would have been more eggs or more milk or longer life or more disease resistance. But increasingly, better is seen as animals that have a lower environmental impact. So the techniques that modern farmers use to change their animals is what we refer to as conventional genetics, that is simply identifying the best animals by recording all of their traits and making sure that the ones that we use for breeding are the best out of that group. And good examples of that are selection for milk yield, whereby milk yield has almost doubled in the last 30 years. And as a result, because demand is fairly fixed, the number of cows required to achieve that amount of production has declined by nearly a half. And so you can see that the environmental impact of half as many cows is really quite significant, and that's applied to all of the different livestock species that we service. In order to be able to address the potential that we already have, we certainly need new technologies. But in addition to new technologies, we need broader and wider application of existing technologies. So there's a huge amount of benefit that conventional selection can still bring. For example, farmers can select for reduced feed intake or improved feed efficiency. And by that methodology, they can produce more food for the same amount of inputs um, or the same amount of food for less inputs. And either way, the environment benefits and wins and the farmer wins because it makes more profit. Now, going onwards, innovation has got to really help us out here to take this further and further forward. There are lots of tools on the horizon that farmers could deploy in the future to enable them to make their selection more precise 
and more broader. And some of those tools include gene editing, uh, but they're quite a long way off yet from application, but they need to be developed further and the legislative framework needs to be constructed such that those developments can take place in an organised fashion. Well, the application of the work that we're doing by farmers varies depending on the species that we work with. But I can say in dairy farming, certainly, there has been a massive and rapid uptake of all the new genomic technologies. And these are technologies whereby farmers can take a small tissue sample from their young animal, have the animal genotyped, and from its DNA, we can tell how good it's going to be for a variety of different traits, such as production and disease resistance and survival and so on. At the moment, the use of gene editing as a technique for food production is not allowed inside the EU. But the requirement to produce a lot of food in the future will need us to explore all of these different types of technologies. And certainly gene editing as a tool enables us to make massive strides in a variety of different fronts. For example, we can gene edit animals to be resistant to certain diseases. We can gene edit rice so it contains certain vitamins. We can gene edit animals so that they don't grow horns and therefore uh, are not a danger to themselves and humans. So there's lots of opportunities for us to deploy these technologies, but we have to find the correct legislative framework in which the technologies can thrive but the proper public control can be exerted. Janet, you've looked at numbers for productivity of livestock production globally and found they vary hugely. So again, this could be, if everybody does best practice, this could be an area where that food gap could be filled. I would just say could be. I think it is and has been. So if you look back historically, um, you know, all the Methusian sort of predictions that we're going to run out of food. The reason we didn't was because we invested significantly in modern agriculture inputs, but more specifically breeding, breeding of both crops and livestock characteristics that improve yield. Uh, you get more from putting less in land, water, but also increasingly, you know, that can have environmental attributes. So we talked earlier about cattle, you know, they burp, methane emissions. Um, well, actually, you can breed them. There's certain ways that you can reduce that through, through breeding. And I also want to mention a, a third characteristic that's going to be increasingly critical is kind of resilience. So resilience to very adverse weathers. We need to, to develop crops and livestock that are, that are more resilient. So that needs to become a, a new trait. So we found that we could actually do a lot just with conventional breeding. Okay, so I'm not talking here about GMO, genetically modified organisers. I'm talking about GM, the other GM. Remember the guy, Greg Mendel, from your, your high school Please. biology? Please. Yeah, so just bringing modern genomics, um, DNA mapping to that allows us, as Mike said, to speed up the process of selecting attractive traits by doing that, we don't have to sort of grow the thing and look to see if it's there. We can sort of pre-select and grow it and then it see if it works. So it's like no more breeding in the dark, I like to say. Is this possible for everywhere in the world, Carl, to see these big productivity improvements? Or are there other impediments to this, like the structure of the market or things like that? 
I would absolutely agree that there's a lot that can be done with breeding and selection. And historically, as Mike mentioned in his piece, it's been very much about maximising output. We can select for other things, so sustainability, um, you know, much as we... Cows um, that don't burp. Absolutely, or, or burp less. Burp less. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the second point is there's obviously a lot of other things we can do around the production system. So there is quite a lot of academic research being done now at diet manipulation and putting additives and alternatives. You know, seaweed is quite an interesting one, all sorts of spices and powders and putting up various kind of weird and wacky things into cow diets to try and reduce methane emissions. The third thing I would just say is this is all tied back, of course, to investment, though. And it's no surprise that if you look in the parts of the world where the livestock production is most innovative, it's places like New Zealand, where the dairy industry is, is a world leader in terms of competitiveness and in terms of you know, productivity and profitability. Why is um, that? Because it's run by big international companies that have got capital to invest? It, there is, a, there is just a natural competitive advantage in places that can grow lots of grass cheaply because the land's cost competitive, it rains a lot basically, and they're producing a lot of their milk from forage. So, so countries have certain geographic features that make them likely to be more productive than others, and you can't change that. Absolutely. There is a fundamental agricultural competitiveness from a production point of view is basically linked to an interplay of soil quality, and which you can't alter. The soil is the soil where it is. You can you can manage it and um, improve it, but the, you know the, the soil base is fixed. Um, and similarly, the kind of agroecology, so the, the fancy term for the interaction of the weather, the climate, the growing season, and that's fundamentally why some places in the world are more productive. Certainly, an open field. Obviously, protected agriculture is different, but from an open field uh, scenario, uh, some places are more productive than others. I think private investment's going to be key here. And I'll give a nice example of Mars. People know them as a chocolate company. They're actually a broader food company. Clearly, you know, the, the procurement of cocoa, which they get from cases like West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, and Ghana, yields, unfortunately, have been going in the opposite direction. They've been declining. And, um, you know, after several years of large investment and work, Mars actually paid for the mapping of the whole genome of the cocoa plant. And to their credit, they put that into the public domain. So to speed up the research around finding, you know, pest resilient and higher breeding crops, that was a very altruistic thing to do, although it was also a very sound business thing because, you know, with declining yields of cocoa and growing demand, there was a cocoa security thing there. Thanks for listening to part one. So please go to part two to continue listening and hopefully find some answers to feeding 9.7 billion people by 2050.